Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in Luke chapter 8. Last audio, we discussed the healing of the Gerasene or Gadarene demoniacs. That was what the event that topped off Jesus' busy day. He had left Capernaum, crossed the Sea of Galilee, over into Gadara on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And now he's returned probably to Capernaum, not definitely, but most probably. He comes back to Capernaum. And the next thing he's going to do, he's going to heal the synagogue leader Jairus's daughter. On the way to, and on the way to doing that, he's going to heal the woman who touched him, the unknown woman who touched him by surprise and was healed of a hemorrhage of blood. Now I've already discussed this in Mark. In Mark, that gospel writer has given a the most thorough discussion of this of the three synoptic gospels. This is in Mark 5:21 through 43. We also have a parallel passage in Matthew 9, 18 through 26. This audio is attempting to cover Luke 8, 40 through 56. It's all parallel, and so I'm going to splice in the audio of Mark 5, verses, verses 21 through 43, and that audio begins now. Hello, everybody. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Mark chapter 5, starting with verse 21. In the first part of Mark chapter 5, we dealt with the healing of, or the exorcism of the Gadarene demoniac. Jesus has left Gadara on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. He's gotten in the boat and he's heading back toward Capernaum. Now I say Capernaum, that's probably according to Robertson, according to NIV Study Bible, probably Capernaum. John Gill says it was certainly Capernaum. As far as I'm concerned, it was Capernaum. When he got there, there was a large crowd gathered. Now, this crowd was expectant, unlike the Gadarenes, who wanted him to leave. This large crowd, of course, was probably some or all of the large crowds that had followed him before he had gotten in the boat to go over to Gadara. They were pressing about him. In fact, in Luke chapter 8, it says, while he was going, or this was after Jairus, the synagogue ruler, had come to him, it says, while he was going toward Jairus' house to heal Jairus' daughter, the crowd was nearly crushing him. So this large crowd was gathered in verse 21, and later on it almost crushed him to show you how difficult it was for Jesus to minister and how popular he had gotten. The abundant teaching earlier, the days in the day before, remember he did healing at night after he healed somebody in the synagogue. I think it was a man with a withered hand. Then at night he had all kinds of people and demoniac people came to him from all over the place and healed them. The next day, he prayed all night, and he went out to a mountain, and the disciples found him. The crowd did not find him at first. Then he appointed the apostles to send them out on their mission. Then he came back. The crowds followed him to his house, and then he got in the boat, gave them parables, and then finally he taught the parables to the disciples, and then he got back in his boat and headed back to Gadara. So the whole time there at, near Capernaum, he was just being mobbed and crushed. So in the midst of this, in Mark 5, chapters, verses 22 through 24, one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and kept begging him, My little daughter is at death's door. Come and lay your hands on her so she can get well and live. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd was following and pressing against him. Now, the question arises, why would Jesus follow Jairus, the synagogue ruler? I mean, he had tons of people there begging to get healed. I suspect it's because of his begging him and the total trust that Jairus put in Jesus. Most synagogue rulers did not believe in Jesus. In fact, we can read in John chapter 7, verse 48, have any of the rulers or Pharisees believed in him? The rulers means the rulers 
possibly of the synagogues. It could be the rulers of the Sanhedrin, but probably the rulers of the synagogues too. They didn't believe in Jesus, but this one did. And he was desperate. He was in need. His little 12-year-old daughter was dying. Notice the degree of faith that Jairus had. He said, come lay your hands on her so she can get well and live. Matthew has it. Come lay your hand on her and she will live. This man believed in Jesus. He acted on his faith. And he came to Jesus and begged and begged him to, to come heal his daughters. Now, he was a synagogue leader. What is a synagogue leader? That's somebody that he's a layman. He's not an official priest, not a Levite or, or Aaronite priest. He looked after the synagogue building. He supervised the worship. He select participants in the worship service. He maintained order. Most synagogues only had one ruler. There were some exceptions. The title was really honorary. There are no real duties involved. So that's who he was. Some people say that this incident occurred at Matthew's feast, that Jairus came in and interrupted Matthew's, the tax collector's feast when he got saved and decided to follow Jesus. He had that big party for all the tax collectors and the Pharisees got so upset with him. They do that by just backing up in Matthew 9 and saying this is the feast and this is what Jesus was teaching. But the problem is you don't know that whether Matthew is continue, continue, continuing with teaching done at Matthew's feast or whether he's brought in some other teaching that happened later. So I won't take a stand on that. Now there is a translation problem here in, Matthew, in uh, Mark and Luke. It's, Jairus comes up to Jesus and says that his little daughter is at death's door about to die. In Matthew 9:18, in most of the translations, it says that Jairus came up and says, my daughter is dead, which can't be the same as about to die. How do we handle that? Well, it could be a translation problem. The, the Greek word is RT, presently near death. My daughter is presently dying or is near death. The Holman Christian Study Bible translates it as my daughter is near death in Matthew. So that means Matthew conforms with Mark and Luke and Jairus is saying my daughter is near death. I think that's the easiest way to handle it. However, you got so many other translations that say that she was about to die, that she had already died. For example, the KGV says that she is even now dead. The New American Bible says she has just died. The New American Standard Bible says she has just died. So does the NIV say she has just died. The ESV says she has just died. So if you're not satisfied with the translation, how do we reconcile? Well, Gill takes the translation reconciliation. He says that RT signifies as, signifies near, and so there's your answer, just like the Homo Christian Study Bible says it, and I think that's the easiest way to take it. But it could be that Matthew combined the information from the messenger later who came and said that the daughter was dead in Jairus' request. Jairus came and requested of Jesus to heal the daughter. Jesus heads for Jairus' house. He's interrupted by the woman with the issue of blood for 12 years. After he deals with her, then the messenger comes from the synagogue ruler's house and said the daughter's already dead. So Matthew just put those two events together, conflated them, and said that Jairus came and said his daughter was dead. That's perfectly reasonable. This is the Barnes commentary solution. At any rate, we move on now to verses Mark chapter 5, verse 25. Now he's interrupted in his journey to Jairus' house. A woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years, and verse 26, had endured much under many doctors. She had spent everything she had and was not helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse. Now, First of all, let's point out that this does not necessarily mean that the suffering she had came from the doctors. It just said that she had endured much under many doctors while under the care of doctors. Well, you can be under the care of a very good doctor and still suffer much. So it might not have been the doctor's fault. 
However, let me list some stuff in the Talmud to give you an idea of some ancient medical practices that might make you think that maybe it was the doctors who were causing her suffering. This is really interesting. This, of course, comes from John Gill, the rabbinic Jewish expert. Quote, various other prescriptions of the Jewish the Jewish doctors give for such a disorder, as may be seen in their Talmud, and many of which Dr. Lightfoot has transcribed, and among the rest they direct to the use of gum of Alexandria, alum, saffron, Persian onions, cumin, and phenum grecum put into wine and drank. Well, okay, spices and wine, that's not so bad. Probably not very useful. Here's another quote from Rabbi Yochanan, says this. This is again from Gill. Quote, take of gum alexandria, of alum, and of crocus hortensis, the weight of a zuzi each, let them be bruised together, and given in wine to the woman that hath an issue of blood. But if this fail, take of Persian onions nine logs, boil them in wine, and give it to her to drink, and say, Arise from thy flux. But should this fail, set her in a place where two ways meet, and let her hold a cup of wine in her hand, and let somebody come behind and affright her, and say, Arise from thy flux. Scare it out over. But should this do no good, take a handful of cumin, and a handful of crocus, and a handful of finu Greek, let these be boiled, and given her to drink, and say, Arise from thy flux. But should this also fail, dig seven trenches, and burn in them some cuttings of vines not yet circumcised, vines not four years old, and let her take in her hand a cup of wine, and let her be led from this trench, and set down over that, and let her be removed from that trench, and set down over another, and in each removal say to her, Arise from thy flux. Well, you can see that's the sort of stuff that would uh, not inspire a lot of confidence in the doctors. And so I think that probably Mark is right that she had endured much from many doctors. Apparently, all they could do is say, arise from thy flunks and make her drink wine. Do different things while she's drinking wine, put different things in the wine. But basically, drink wine, get drunk, and say, arise from thy flunks. They didn't have an answer. Mark also adds she had spent everything she had and was not helped at all. For all this quackery, she had spent all of her money. And not only had she not gotten better, she would gotten worse. Now, let's discuss just what a pitiful state this woman is in. Adam Clark lists several things about her situation. First, because of the nature of her malady, it was such as could not be made public without exposing her to shame and contempt. It was probably vaginal bleeding, according to the NIV Study Bible, probably. Adam Clark says her disorder was of that delicate nature that modesty forbade her to make any public acknowledgement of it. Second, it was an inveterate disorder. It had lasted 12 years. It was chronic. See, it was continual. She appears to have had no interval of health. In other words, it was not only chronic and reoccurring, it was continuous. It never stopped bleeding for 12. Can you imagine bleeding for 12 years? Now, I heard a story from my dentist whose son was going to Columbia Evangelical Seminary or Columbia Seminary in Atlanta, Georgia, Decatur, Georgia, and the son was taking a class that a woman was teaching, and she was teaching this passage, and there were women in the class, and she said, I only want the women to answer this question, of course. She said, how many of you had a bad period? Now, not all women have bad periods, but some in the class had, and, and I, I, of course, am not a woman, and my wife has never had a bad period in her life, So I, but I have heard other women talk about how bad these periods are and all the medicine they have to take, and it'll lay it out, and they can't move, and, you know, it's just really bad. So she said, when I think about your bad period and think about 
What it would be like if you had a bad period like that for 12 years running without stopping. And when, when I heard that story, I said, whoa, I sort of felt her pain a little bit. Her, and next, as Adam Clark goes on, her disorder was aggravated by the medicine she used. She suffered much. She got worse, in other words. When I told you the medicines that they used back then for bloody flux, you can imagine that she would get worse using that kind of medicine, at least not get better. Her malady was ruinous both to her health and her circumstances. She had spent all that she had. She was now brought to the last point of wretchedness, want, and despair. She was growing worse and had neither money nor goods to make another experiment to procure her health. She was brought so low by her disorder as to be incapable of earning anything to support her wretched life a little longer. She can't work. She's a woman. Doesn't say whether she was married or not, but she was in bad shape, really bad shape. We need to point out also she was ceremonially unclean, which means nobody was supposed to touch her. And she wasn't supposed to touch anybody else without making her unclean, but she touched Jesus' robe. Leviticus 15, verses 25 through 27 says this, Now, if a woman has a discharge of her blood many days, not at the period of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond that period, all the days of her impure discharge, she shall continue as though in her menstrual impurity she is unclean. The distinction is made there between a normal period and some kind of disease of hemorrhaging any bed on which she lies all the days of her discharge shall be to her like her bed at menstruation i.e that's unclean and everything on which she sits shall be unclean like her uncleanness at that time likewise whatever touches them shall be unclean whoever touches them shall be unclean and shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening so jesus was ceremonially unclean when that woman touched him this of course made her existence miserable nobody could ever have contact with her I don't know if she was married. I doubt if she was married, but if she was married, man couldn't touch her without becoming unclean. He could participate in the Jewish rituals. Now, let's, let me go back and pick up something, a point that my NIV study Bible made about she had endured much suffering under the doctors. Luke was a doctor himself, and he doesn't mention this little fact. And the NIV study Bible makes a point that Luke showed much restraint in describing the failure of the doctors, and he's probably a little bit more sympathetic to the doctors. Let's move on to verse 27 of Mark 5. Having heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his robe. For she said, if I can just touch his robes, I'll be made well. Verse 28. Verse 29. Instantly her flow of blood ceased, and she sensed in her body that she was cured of her affliction. The Luke parallel in verse 44 said she, she touched the tassel of his robe. Tassels is what Jewish rabbis wore on their robes. Apparently, Jesus was playing the part of a Jewish rabbi wearing that type of robe. He was thus complying with the ceremonial law, as he always did, as John Gill points out. Now, let's look at some options as to why the woman touched the fringe of Jesus' robe. It could be that she thought there was peculiar holiness in the fringe. I don't think so. John Gill disagrees with that, too. She might have thought that because the Jews placed much sanctity in the wearing and using of these fringes, and she she had a she might have had a superstitious feeling about those fringes. I don't think so. John Gill says it was probably just easier to touch him from behind, which he, because people would be in front of him, trying to talk to him, begging him, pleading with him, and she just sneaked up from behind. I think that's reasonable to think. As to as to why she thought she would be healed just by touching his robe, that was reasonable. It was reasonable for her to assume she would be healed that way. She had probably been encouraged by other stories of people being healed by touch. For example, in Luke chapter 6, verse 19, 
And all the people were trying to touch him, for power was coming from him and healing them all. So Jesus wasn't just asking people, do you have faith, and and laying his hands on their eyes and laying his hands on the ears and all that kind of stuff. People were just touching him, and out came the divine power to heal. This was healing like nobody has seen before or since. Now, this took a lot of guts on this woman's part to touch him because it made him ceremonially unclean. And Jesus was, I mean, let's face it, he was a big-time rabbi. There was, the whole world was running after him, and she touched him. Her faith was bolstered by physical contact, says the NIV Study Bible, and I, and I agree with that. But then the NIV Study Bible says that some implied that this was a weakness, that she had to touch the robe. She should have just believed in Jesus. I think that is absolute nonsense. I, I'd say to somebody, somebody that would say that, I would say, well, let's see you. What would you would do if you had 12 years of bloody hemorrhaging and were as miserable as this woman was? You're going to criticize her because she had a lack of faith? Jameson Fawcett Brown says, on the contrary, remarkable faith this. And I think that Jameson Fawcett Brown are exactly right. By the way, I should mention here, there's a similar account of Jesus dealing with a woman who had been sick for 18 years in Luke 13. This is not the same situation, and it's easy to confuse the two in your mind. In Luke 13, Jesus, or it was said that Satan has bound this woman, a daughter of Abraham, for 18 years. Shouldn't she be untied from this bondage on the Sabbath day? That's Jesus speaking. And the, the problem this woman had for 18 years was she was bent over by a disabling spirit. The demon had her bent over so she couldn't stand up. That's not a flow of blood, but it's, it's a similar type story. Let's move on now to Mark chapter 5, verse 29. Instantly her flow of blood ceased. This is after she touched Jesus' robe. And she sensed in her body that she was cured. Actually, I've already read that, already read that to you. So let's go to the parallels, Matthew 9:22. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, Daughter, take courage, your faith has made you well. At once the woman was made well. Now notice that Jesus says, Your faith has made you well. That's a phrase that he used a good bit in many other circumstances. It doesn't mean that she had faith in her faith. She had faith in Jesus. Jesus is saying, The faith is the means by which I healed you. It doesn't mean that she healed herself by trusting in her own faith. That might seem like a subtle difference, but it's not because the faith message has totally perverted the concept of faith and turned it into a magical power that if you just conjure up the the powers that are within the human spirit, you can heal things and, oh, by the way, mention Jesus on the side. No, no, no. Her faith in Jesus made her well. And notice that she acted on her faith. She just didn't say, I believe, I believe. She went out and touched him. That word healed, by the way, sozo, I believe it is here, it actually means saved. The NIV Study Bible says that this means that Jesus is talking about spiritual deliverance as well as physical. Your faith has made you well, and your faith has saved you. Well, maybe so. I don't know. Possible. Mark chapter 5, verse 34, which we haven't gotten to yet. Jesus says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be free from your affliction. So we might deduce from Mark chapter 5, verse 34, that go in peace phrase, that meant spiritual salvation as well as being free from your affliction, which was physical healing. The both are intimately tied together in many places in the scripture, of course, including in Isaiah 50, 55. How did Jesus know to turn around when he got touched? I'm sure he could sense healing power flowing out of him, says John Gill. Luke chapter 8, 46 says this, someone did touch me for I was aware that power had gone out of me. Let's hop on over here to Luke to get some more detail here. 
Who touched me, Jesus asked. This is starting in Luke 8, verse 45. Who touched me, Jesus asked, when they all denied it. Peter said, Master, the crowds are hemming you in and pressing against you. In other words, all these people are in here and you want us to pick out the one person that touched me? Why did Jesus want to know? Because he wanted to know who got healed. Because it must have been a lot of power that left him, so it must have been a big miraculous healing. He wanted to find out about it. And, and so, well, let's go ahead and read in Mark to catch up with my synoptic passage in Luke. Mark 5, verse 30. At once Jesus realized in himself that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my robe? This shows that healing which come that the healing which came forth from Jesus is God. This counteracts the hyper faith claims that Jesus only did miracles as a man. They say that a lot. But here Jesus did the the, the healing as God because he didn't even know as a man that the woman was back there. That was divine healing there. Divine healing, not human healing on the power of the Holy Spirit or in the power of the Holy Spirit. That was divine healing. There was no positive confession there. There was an act of faith, however, because she reached out and touched him. Here's a quote from Jameson Fawcett and Brown. He was conscious of the forthgoing of his healing power, which was not, as in prophets and apostles, something foreign to himself and imparted merely, but what he had dwelling within him as his own fullness. So that's the distinction between Jesus' healing and somebody today that exercises a gift of healing by the Holy Spirit. There's, there's some difference. Mark 5:31. his disciples said to him, you see the crowds pressing against you and you say, who touched me? Again, as I said, his disciples are going to say, how can we tell who touched you with all these people about? The disciples sounded like they were getting their backs up about that question. It sounded like they were a little bit irritated. John Gill says they thought the question was strange and unnecessary. <laughs> Mark 5, verse 32 and 33. So he was looking around to see who had done this. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came with fear and trembling, fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Jesus was determined not to let this woman get lost in the crowd, and she didn't. She came forward with fear and trembling. Why did Jesus not want her to get lost in the crowd? He wanted to publicly commend her faith. He wanted to assure her that she was permanently healed, according to the NIV Study Bible. Note that even though divine power had gone out of him and healed her, he still was a man because he didn't know where she was. He was not omniscient. He did not omnisciently know who that woman was. He had to ask as a human being. Why did the woman have fear and trembling? She was afraid of being reproved or punished for appearing in public with a flow of blood. She was supposed to be confined like in during the days of her menstruation, but she was unclean. And you can imagine how many people she touched in that crowd, making them unclean too. Took a lot of guts what she did. Luke eight forty seven says that in the presence of all the people, she declared the reason she had touched him and how she was instantly cured. Why did Jesus get her to confess this embarrassing circumstance? He was trying to build her faith. It must have been terribly humiliating to tell everybody that she had a vaginal discharge for 12 years, but Jesus wanted the woman to publicly testify. Application point, this is a good note for those shy violets who don't want to give praise reports in church. If they're shy... Leaders in the church, in my humble opinion, ought to encourage them to speak up and say what Jesus has done for them. It does an incredible amount of good to hear people talk about what Jesus has done for them. I think anybody who's been in a good church long enough to knows when you, the longer you hear about Jesus doing stuff for people, the more faith you have in him. Notice in Luke 8:47, she declared the reason she had touched him. That means she had to confess that she had that vaginal discharge or that hemorrhage, whatever it was embarrassing situation 
Going on to Mark chapter 5, verse 34. Daughter, he, Jesus, said to her, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be free from your affliction. And again, notice her faith has made you well. She, he says, not her faith in herself, not her faith in her faith, but her faith in Jesus. And he called her daughter, which was a affable, courteous way of speaking, as John Gill says, to show that he did not blame her for touching him, which I'm sure she was worried about. Because in Mark 5, verse 33, the previous verse, it said the woman fearing and trembling came and fell down before him. Jesus says, go in peace and be free from your affliction. Be free and encouragement that the healing was permanent. Her sickness would not come back. Be free. You're free from your affliction. You're not a slave to it anymore. Jesus came to proclaim liberty to the captives, including those who are captives to this, to this physical ailment. Mark 5, verses 35 and 36 while he was still speaking, people came from the synagogue leader's house and said, Your daughter is dead. So now we return to the story of Jairus, who came up and who came to Jesus and begged him to come to his house near Capernaum and heal his daughter. But some messengers came on their way to the house and said, Your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? In other words, death is the final defeat. No use. The ball game's over. The fat lady sung. Don't bother Jesus anymore, but Jesus is bigger than that. When Jesus overheard what was said, he told the synagogue leader, Don't be afraid. Only believe. Believe means to have faith, to have faith in God. And notice that the, it's contrasted with afraid. Fear and faith are absolute black and white opposites. If ever you feel yourself being afraid, you need to think, The reason I'm afraid is because my faith is too low. If my faith was higher, I wouldn't be afraid anymore. We have a minor reconciliation problem in verse 35 of Mark chapter 5 because it says people came from the synagogue leader's house, Jairus' house, to tell Jesus that the daughter had died. People came, but if you look in the parallel passage in Luke chapter 8 verse 49, Luke says someone came from the synagogue leader's house. Well, how do you reconcile this is very easy. It, it could be one person came with the group, a group came, and one person taught. So when it says, when Mark says people came and said, that means people came and one of them said, whereas Luke just said one of them said. Someone came and said. Or it could be one came first and said, and then the whole group came. Or it could be the group came first and then one came. That one's easy to reconcile unless you're a liberal Protestant who likes to poke holes in the Bible and show how you know more than God does and how you disrespect his word that people have died for to get the word of salvation to this suffering human race that we live in. If you want to be like that, well, then you can nitpick. Now, it seems that faith often has to fight professions of unbelief because the messenger says she's dead and Jesus says, I don't care if she's dead, believe. Now, this is where the faith message people, the hyper faith people got it right that oftentimes negative talk really, really does hurt one's faith. And I know that they've perverted that and turned it into witchcraft. But nonetheless, the principle is the same. You know, you talk negative all the time, it will affect you. might not affect you to the, a, love, a mathematical connection where 100% certainly you say something negative, something positive, negative is going to happen and so forth. That's nonsense. But in general, a lot of times you have to believe when all the evidence is to the contrary, like Peter walking on the water in the storm... The evidence is, I'm going to sink and die, but he walked and he believed, and he, and he lived. A good example of this is just right in a few verses. Uh, when they got to the synagogue leader's house, the people there 
started mocking Jesus. They started laughing at him because he said, the girl isn't dead, she's just sleeping. And they started laughing at him. So you see, you believe in God, you do miracles, people going to laugh at you. Adam Clark says that the people here called him a teacher. Why bother the teacher anymore, the rabbi? People could understand Jesus as a teacher, and they could even understand him as a healer. But they haven't arrived to the point yet where they saw him as someone who could raise the dead. That was going a little bit, that was over there, off their radar scope. So this was a huge miracle that Jesus is about to do. Mark 5, verse 37. He, Jesus, did not let anyone accompany him except Peter, James, and John. James' brother, that's James and John, the son of Zebedee, and probably Salome. Now, why those three? Well, those three disciples had an especially close relationship to Jesus. You hear this all the time. I went through and found a bunch of scriptures where it clearly shows Peter, James, and John are working alone with Jesus. Acts chapter 3, 1. Now, Peter and John were going up together to the temple complex. That's Peter and John, not James. Mark 9, 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves to be alone. He was transformed in front of them. The Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John. Mark 13:3. while he was sitting on the Mount of Olives across from the temple complex, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, this is the Olivet Discourse, Andrew was in on the discussion that time, but still you see Peter, James, and John together. Mark 14, verse 33, this is in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before Jesus was crucified, the same day that he was crucified. He took Peter, that evening, that early morning actually, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke 22.8, Jesus said, sent Peter and John, go and prepare the Passover meal. So Peter and John got the donkey, excuse me, not the donkey, <laughs> went and got the food together for the Passover meal, the Last Supper. Mark 1.29, as soon as they left the synagogue, they went into Simon and Andrew's house with James and John. So we got Simon, Peter, James, and John together in that house, along with Andrew. So you see, Peter, James, and John often were the trusted disciples that Jesus sort of sort of trained more than the other. Or how can I put it? Uh, he kind of relied on them more than he did on the others. Why did Jesus desire privacy going into that house by himself, into that room by himself with his three disciples? He was not seeking the honor and praise of men, obviously. This, this is my speculation. Maybe he didn't want the people who were faithless and mockers in there to mock him as he's raising this girl from the dead. Mockery has no... No, no truck with faith. Maybe he didn't want her to be scared when she woke up and saw all those people in there moaning and groaning and professional mourners and all. When he had got, speaking of professional mourners, when he had gotten to the synagogue ruler's house, he saw a commotion. Let's read that in Mark 5, verse 38. They came to the leader's house and he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. Now, of course, these are professional mourners. Matthew, I think, adds flute players along with the weeping and wailing. They were musicians hired to play in mourning ceremonies, as the NIV Study Bible says. And there may have been a lot of them. Perhaps Jairus was prominent. He was a ruler. He was a leader. So they might, he might have had a lot of mourners there. Even the poorest of Jews was required to have two pipers and one mourning woman, according to Adam Clark. Here's a passage in Jeremiah 9. I'm just going to call out the passages where it talks about mourners. Mourning women, wailing women, wailing for us. A voice of wailing is heard from Zion. Hear the word of the Lord, O you women. Teach your daughters wailing. Amos chapter 5, verse 16. Alas, alas, they call the farmer to mourning and professional mourners to lamentation. So that was a Jewish custom. They were hired to wail and lament, even though they actually might not feel a thing in their heart. 
Now, when Jesus said Jairus' daughter was only asleep, that was very common. He said the same thing about Lazarus. When he rose Lazarus from the dead, he says, I'm going to awaken him from his sleep. Lazarus has fallen asleep. And that's what Jesus looked at. Do you ever look at somebody that's fallen asleep and you get really upset about it? No, it's no big deal. That's exactly how Jesus looked at death. Just falling asleep, no big deal. But boy, when we face death, do we look at it just like falling asleep? If we had a scriptural and Jesus attitude about it, we, that's probably how exactly we'd look at it. Just falling asleep, and then we'll see Jesus. You can speculate where her spirit was while she was dead. I suspect it was in the presence of God the Father. She had what is today called a NDE, a near-death experience. But we don't get to hear what she saw, which is kind of unfortunate. I'd like to have heard what she saw. Mark 5, verses 40 through 41. They started laughing at him, but he put them all outside. He took the child's father and mother and those who were with them and entered the place where the child was. Well, I said he had Peter and James and John. He also had the Jairus and Jairus' wife went in there too. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talithakum, which is translated a little girl, I say to you, get up. Mark, of course, is writing for Gentile audiences, so he needs to translate that Aramaic. Now, Luke, in a parallel passage, Luke 8:53. Luke says this, they started laughing at him because they knew she was dead. So that's an evidentiary point there that everybody knew she was dead. There was no question about her being unconscious and then coming back to life. She was dead as a doornail. So Jesus really did perform a resurrection miracle. Mark is the only writer who preserves original Aramaic according to the NIV study Bible. Talitha Kumi did that in a lot of places, uh, put in some Aramaic expressions. Of course, the disciples and Jesus probably ordinarily spoke Aramaic, and that's why he said to Lethakum. Jesus and the disciples may have also spoken Hebrew and Greek. We don't know. The NIV Study Bible speculates. I asked myself the question, I wonder why he bothered to translate here, and I don't know why. I know he did it, but I don't know why he did it. Now, I just finished saying that Jesus went into that room to raise Jairus' daughter up with Peter, James, and John, and his mother, her mother, excuse me, her mother and father, Actually, that's not a slam dunk for certain statement because John Gill points out it could be those who had come with Jairus to fetch Christ. That could have been who was with him. Could have been some other relatives and intimate, uh, besides the mother and father, could have been intimate friends. So Jesus took them in for witnesses, so nobody could deny that the girl was raised from the dead. Mark 5, verse 42, immediately the girl got up and began to walk. She was 12 years old. At this, they were utterly astounded. Matthew 9, verse 25, adds this detail, when the crowd had been sent out. So Jesus actually expelled the mockers and the mourners. Why? Here's some options. Maybe he wanted to keep the healing a secret. Remember, this is early in his ministry. He doesn't want to be prematurely proclaimed Messiah, and he's being mobbed with crowds everywhere, so he's trying to keep the excitement down. Maybe it was to show that Jesus was not seeking popular applause. He wasn't trying to proclaim himself as the big guru because he could heal people. Maybe it was to show that the scoffers and the doubters weren't worthy to be in the same room with him. After showing Jesus such scorn and contempt by laughing at him, could be a combination of all three of those motives. Notice that he grabbed her by the hand while she was dead, and then, she, and then he said to Luther Kuhn, he grabbed a dead child by the hand. She was dead, a dead body. Touching a dead body defiled one under the law, and Jesus never worried about that. John Gill says this, quote, Yet this did not defile him any more than his touching the leper, leper or the profluvious woman's touching his clothes, the woman with the hemorrhage. For these actions produced supernatural effects which came not under the cognizance of the law. And I've often said just because you're defiled by the law anyway doesn't mean you've broken the law. It just means you're, you're actually keeping the law because you, it, you say that you're defiled. 
Numbers 19.16 says, Anyone in the open field who touches a person who has been killed by the sword or has died, or who even touches a human bone or a grave, will be unclean for seven days. So Jesus was apparently unclean, ritually unclean. Now the little girl got up after she was healed. She got off the bed, walked about the house. Food was ordered to be given to her, all of which showed she was fully restored to life. She had a lot of energy for somebody who was just recently dead. Lots of energy. Notice that in the parallel version in Matthew 9, verse 25, this news spread throughout all the land, despite Jesus' efforts to keep it quiet. The fact that Jesus had ordered that the little girl be given something to eat is a detail that's in Mark. He wanted to show that not only she was alive, but she was healthy as well. All right, I have returned from my splice of Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43, discussing the healing of Jairus' daughter, the synagogue ruler Jairus' daughter, and the healing of the woman with the hemorrhage of blood. So we have now finished Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56, and indeed have finished the whole chapter of Luke chapter 8. We will start with Luke chapter 9 in the next audio. I hope you enjoyed this one.